from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The United States led the world in mobilizing, creating and mobilizing a global coalition um, to crush the false caliphate in Syria and Iraq. Nathan Sales, the State Department's counterterrorism coordinator. Virtually all of the territory that ISIS took during its reign has been taken back. But that doesn't mean the fight is over. It means that it's shifting into a new phase. And that phase will not necessarily be a military phase, but more so law enforcement. Trying to spot terrorists who are crossing our borders. And one of their key tactics is using name records. The technique known as link analysis, where you're matching known terrorists and their unknown associates. We'll drill down into that on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm Robert Baer, former CIA operative from WTOP from Washington, D.C. This is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On the previous episode of Target USA, you heard State Department counterterrorism coordinator Nathan Sales say this about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and every terror event in the U.S. that's happened since then. One of the things that's really remarkable about the 93 World Trade Center bombing is how little effect it had on the U.S. national security community. It was very much business as usual. Um, The perpetrators were investigated, um, indictments were issued, and people pretty much looked the other way with regard to the al-Qaeda threat. Um, Al-Qaeda paid attention, and they knew uh, that there were vulnerabilities in the United States and in our interests worldwide. They continued to hit us, and they hit us again in 98 when they attacked two embassies in East Africa. Uh, they hit us again in 2000, the USS Cole. And then 9-11, of course, they hit us in a very uh, damaging way that has had major repercussions. Um, it took the United States a long time, too long, I would say, uh, to uh, fully awaken to the threat that al-Qaeda and similar organizations pose. Um, But we are now in a position, we now have um, developed the institutional capabilities, um, offices in the State Department, the National Counterterrorism Center, the Director for National Intelligence, and we now have, as a policy matter, a top priority to confront the terrorist threat. Uh, We're in a very different position today, a quarter of a century on, from where we started off. And on this program, looking at what ISIS has been able to accomplish in the last three and a half years and the resurgence of al-Qaeda, we talked to Nathan Sale about how the U.S. and the rest of the world are positioned to fight the next generation of terrorism. I think we're in a, in a much better place today than we were even five years ago to confront uh, the threat that has been on everybody's mind, namely ISIS. What we've done over the past 
five years since, well, let, let's take a step back and look at the lay of the land uh, in 2013, 2014. Uh, ISIS is spreading like a pestilence across Iraq and Syria. It's drawing foreign terrorist fighters into the war zone from all over the world, from North America, from the Middle East, from Europe. Um, it's seizing territory. It's operating uh, or has aspirations to operate a proto-state um, that exploits natural resources, that imposes criminal penalties on people under its control, um, and is projecting terrorist attacks across the globe. The Paris attacks in November 15, the Brussels attacks in the spring of 2016 are good examples of that. Um, in response to that, the United States led the world in mobilizing, creating and mobilizing a global coalition um, to crush the false caliphate in Syria and Iraq. And we've achieved extraordinary success in doing that. Virtually all of the territory ISIS once held uh, has been liberated. Millions of people are now free. But that doesn't mean the fight is over. It means that it's shifting into a new phase. The State Department hosted a conference for members of the coalition to talk about what comes next. And I think what comes next is a transition from a largely military response to ISIS to one that will increasingly rely on law enforcement tools and civilian uh, sector efforts, things like border security, um, things like information sharing, prosecution of known and suspected terrorists. Um, we're, we're well equipped to handle this phase of, of, of the campaign against ISIS because these are the same sorts of tools that we've been using against groups like al-Qaeda. So what gives you that confidence that you're well equipped? Uh, and we know this is a time when budgets are, you know, uh, in jeopardy everywhere. We know that State Department's resources in countries have, have been shrinking um, historically for a number of years in terms of presence, places where you are, et cetera. But obviously, it's the partners that make all the difference. So can you give us a sense of uh, how you're making steps and strides in that, in that, in that goal that you, you just laid out? Absolutely. So we know that we're well-equipped to handle this challenge because the tools we're using are effective, the tools that we and our partners are using. So let me give you a, a few examples. Um, one of the hallmarks of post-9-11 U.S. national security policy um, is trying to spot terrorists who are crossing our borders. Um, one of the things we do to spot those uh, movements of threats is use airline reservation data. It's known as passenger name records or PNR. It's a really powerful tool because you can um, use it to scan for suspicious travel patterns, thereby identify threats that might have escaped notice. And another thing you can do with this data is um, uh, Perform a tech, use a technique known as link analysis, where you're matching known associate, or sorry, known terrorists and their unknown associates. Um, this tool, we've been using it since um, the 1990s to spot suspicious cargo, contraband, or you know, knock off Disney counterfeit goods from from China. Since 9-11, we've used this tool to spot terrorists trying to cross our borders, and it's been very effective. We're also using things like biometrics. We mm -hmm. spot, uh, we 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 uh, take fingerprints and facial scans of visitors to this country when they show up at the airport and use that data to verify their identities. Um, you know, terrorists try to hide who they really are. Um, it's a lot harder for them to hide their actual fingerprints. And a third technique that we've used um, is watch listing. We use lists of known and suspected terrorists to um, scrutinize travelers coming by land, sea, or air. 
Now, all of these tools that the United States pioneered, we've also been urging our international partners to use. We know that they've been effective here in the United States, um, and we've been um, pitching them to our international allies and asking them to make the same efforts, um, and they will see the same results. Mm -hmm. um, our sales pitch, as it were, got a big boost last December um, because the United Nations Security Council adopted a new resolution calling on all member countries to adopt these same sorts of systems. It did a lot uh, of other things, but you know, some of the most important requirements in that new resolution are for the rest of the world to live up to the U.S. standards. Mm -hmm. So um, this conference, the International Conference on Mobilizing Law Enforcement Efforts to Defeat ISIS, Al-Qaeda, as I understand it, is making a comeback. There are other terror groups that are out there that are active. Just today, March 2nd, 2018, in Ouagadougou, in Burkina Faso, there was an attack. And it's my understanding that Americans and U U.S. State Department employees were told uh, to, to be very vigilant and, and to, to take due care. So what's your, what's your how does this help in that situation when it's not about crossing our borders, but you still, you have that little space of U.S. property in another country. How does that help in that regard? Uh, it's a great question. So, so first of all, I, I really agree with the warning that you sounded about Al-Qaeda. Um, we've been focused on ISIS um, for the past five years, but we, we can't let our focus on rolling back the false caliphate distract us from other threats. Hezbollah um, is an Iranian-backed terrorist organization that threatens the United States. Um, Al-Qaeda, uh, of course, continues to threaten the United States, notwithstanding a relatively quiet period from them in the past couple of years. So, you know, we, had, we hosted this conference here in Washington um, about law enforcement efforts to defeat ISIS. But I can tell you, on the margins of this conference, we had a number of conversations with our allies, reminding them not to take their eye off the Al-Qaeda threat as well. We certainly aren't here in the United States, and it was important for us to deliver a message to our partner countries, you guys better pay attention to this threat too. Um, with respect to terrorist attacks uh, that happen overseas, um, those don't, even when those threats and attacks don't kill Americans, they're still worrisome. Um, it's important for us in the United States and with our partners to strike at global terrorist networks across the globe. This is a, a global network that requires a, a global response. So what are we doing to accomplish that? Well, in places like Africa and places like Southeast Asia, um, we're working with countries that have a great deal of political will to address this problem, even if they don't have the resources to address this problem. And so we make what you might call targeted investments. We'll invest in things like uh, law enforcement training in a particular country so that terrorists who commit crimes can be prosecuted for, for their offenses, so they can face justice. We'll make targeted investments in countries' border security systems so they can track the movement of terrorists across their borders. We'll share information with them, um, lists of known and suspected terrorists. And you know, the these efforts are not an act of charity. Um, they do help our partner countries, but over the long run, we see them as helping the United States as well because they help us degrade terrorist networks overseas um, and prevent terrorist networks from developing the strength they need to conduct external operations, you know, to, mm -hmm. to use parts of the world as safe haven from which they can plan strikes on us here at home. So which groups, if you can, uh, and I know you probably like most people that I speak to that work in your space don't want to rank 
these things, but these organizations. But could you give us a, a, a glimpse of which organizations you consider the main threats right now? Um, it's difficult to rank, as you said. Let, let me just draw your attention to a couple of the groups that have been um, on our radar screen lately here in, at the State Department and in the U.S. government generally. So this week um, here in Washington at the conference, I announced that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson designated a number of ISIS-related affiliates. Um, they include affiliates in West Africa, in Somalia, in Egypt, in the Philippines groups that committed attacks on, for instance, in Egypt, um, the ISIS affiliate bombed the Coptic Christian Cathedral in Cairo, killing 28 people several years ago. Um, In Bangladesh, the ISIS affiliate in Bangladesh uh, committed an attack against the the Holy Artisanal Bakery in Dhaka, uh, killing dozens of people. Um, Why did we designate these groups? Well, we designated them to draw attention to the fact that ISIS is still a threat. Um, even though their territorial holdings in Syria and Iraq have been liberated, the group is fanning out across the globe um, in places like North Africa, in places like the Middle East, in places like Southeast Asia. Um, and it's important for us to keep up the pressure, and that's what those designations help do. As you look at where you are now with these designations and, and, and looking at the threat picture, um, an overall look at what threats the U.S. faces um, beyond those organizations, beyond those groups, but just in from from I guess from an ideological point of view, maybe a broader look at what what are the main threats that the U.S. faces. Well, so the ISIS network is is one of the threats that that we've just discussed. Al Qaeda remains a threat, um, as as I've alluded to earlier. Um, as I as you know, as we discussed, ISIS. Sorry, um, ISIS has sort of dominated the headlines lately. Um, Al Qaeda has been quietly regrouping. Um, they're content to let ISIS bear the brunt of the military response and the public condemnation. But that, that doesn't mean that Al Qaeda has made its peace with the West. Mm-hmm. That means they're being patient and strategic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, a threat that uh, we're focused on. And as I said, just this week in Washington, while discussing ISIS at this conference, we were very clear with our partners and allies guys, you got to pay attention to this threat too. And I think a third major threat that we're focused on here in the Trump administration is the threat of Iran-backed terrorism. Nathan Sales, counterterrorism coordinator at the State Department. And after this short break... Uh, Hezbollah, the terrorist organization based in Lebanon, has become assertive and ambitious in a way that we haven't seen in, in years, maybe decades. The resurgence of Iranian-backed terrorism, coming up on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. We've been talking to Nathan Sales, counterterrorism coordinator at the State Department, about the three major terror threats to the U.S. and the rest of the West. Number one, ISIS. Number two, Al-Qaeda. And he says number three is a worrying resurgence of Iran-backed terrorism. Now we continue. Uh, Hezbollah, the terrorist organization based in Lebanon, has become 
assertive and ambitious in a way that we haven't seen in, in years, maybe decades. Of course, you know, Hezbollah was responsible for the 1983 uh, Marine Corps barracks bombing in Beirut that killed hundreds of our soldiers. Um, and we're seeing Hezbollah fighters uh, go from Lebanon into Syria to help prop up the brutal Assad dictatorship. Um, we're seeing them go into Yemen as well uh, to play a malign role in, in the conflict there. This is deeply worrying to us because as these Hezbollah fighters gain battlefield experience, you know, they're going to take those skills back with them to Lebanon. That could destabilize Lebanon further. Um, these fighters could be the vanguard of a, in, in any new conflict between Hezbollah and Israel. Um, we're also concerned, um, well, before, before I leave Hezbollah, um, it's important to understand that the close operational links between Hezbollah and its principal patron, Iran. Uh, Iran provides Hezbollah with an extraordinary amount of money, $700 million a year uh, in, in, in funding. It's a lot of money, uh, and it all comes out of the pockets of the Iranian people. Uh, mm -hmm. Iran's not focused on improving wages. It's not improve, focused on improving economic growth for its people. It's focused on terrorism. Um, we also see that Iranian commitment to terrorism through the Quds Force and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. Um, as you know, the, uh, the U.S. government designated the Quds Force as a terrorist organization back in 2007. Well, just a couple months ago, uh, the, the Treasury Department decided to designate all of the IRGC, not just the Quds Force, but the IRGC in its entirety for providing support to terrorism. Um, so the, the Trump administration is keenly aware of the threat that Iran poses across a number of different dimensions. We're not just focused on the nuclear program now. We're, we're focused on Iran's destabilizing activities in the region. We're focused on their ballistic missile program. And from where I sit, very importantly, we're focused on their support for terrorism around the world. Mm -hmm. The question of Hezbollah. Um, there was a guy by the name of Imad Magnia who was killed some years ago, who many say was the mastermind of some of those attacks you talked about. He essentially was their operational guy, and he was killed in an allegedly, I don't think the Israelis ever came out and said they did it, but we do know that he did die uh, as a result of what was called an assassination attempt. Um, how do you classify, or characterize rather, um, their capabilities when you compare him and that group to somebody like Ibrahim al-Assiri with AQAP? Uh, there's no doubt that Hezbollah has uh, extensive capabilities to, to commit terrorism. Um, part of their capabilities derive from the battlefield experience that their fighters have gotten in Syria um, and in Yemen. Um, they are also developing deeply troubling capabilities with missiles. Um, it's now the case that Hezbollah is pursuing the ability to develop their own missiles inside Lebanon, which they could use to strike all of Israel. Um, it's a very different situation from where things stood in 2006, the last time we witnessed a, a large-scale conflict between uh, the Iranian proxy of Hezbollah and um, the Israeli armed forces. Then AQAP, yeah, Al-Siri, does he, and, and as I understand it, he's still out there. Is he still as much of a concern 
as he was some years ago. AQAP as a whole is very much a concern of ours. This was one of the most, this historically has been one of the most capable and ambitious Al-Qaeda franchises. Um, in 2009, it was an AQAP operative uh, by the name of Umar Farouk Abdulmutallab who attempted to explode a bomb on a flight to uh, the United States on Christmas Day. Um, since then, AQAP was behind uh, the printer cartridges plot mm-hmm. um, in which they attempted to um, uh, smuggle explosive devices onto, onto cargo planes uh, hidden in printer cartridges. Um, it's a very dangerous group, and the threat they pose uh, is only intensified by the unstable environment in Yemen right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. The, the lesson of the past 20 years is that when terrorist groups have safe haven, when they operate in environments that are, are fluid and governments don't have control, they're able to project power outward. Mm-hmm. They're able to conduct attacks in the United States, in Europe, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we are so focused on not forgetting the threat that al-Qaeda poses. Mm-hmm. So now we get to the really interesting part of this podcast, and that is what your objectives are mm-hmm. in this job. Because you've been here for a few months now, um, and uh, clearly the terrorism picture has improved <clears throat> in part because of the ISIS retreat to wherever it is they're retreating to, whether it's cyberspace or looking or just retreating into some kind of... Uh, uh, insurgency, but I'm interested in hearing what your objectives are uh, in dealing with that and all the other things that are out there. What are they? Sure. Well, that, that's a big question, um, and I'll, I'll just well, I'll just uh, carve off a couple pieces um, uh, as illustrative of, of what I want to focus on. So, um, you know, that conference that we mentioned. Um, using law enforcement and civilian tools. Let me give you a couple of law enforcement and civilian tools that that we're really prioritizing. Um, The first is that suite of border security tools and and information tools to spot terrorists and other threats crossing our borders. Um, As I mentioned, there's a UN Security Council resolution adopted in December of last year, Resolution 2396, that makes mandatory a, a number of different uh, border security measures, use of airline reservation data to screen for terrorists, uh, collection and use of biometrics um, to screen for terrorists, um, as well as collecting, maintaining, and exchanging lists of known and suspected terrorists. Um, we've been doing that for years in the United States, so we're fully compliant. It's going to be important for us to help our partners come into compliance with this new resolution. Um, Europe is fairly far along, at least on the passenger name record front. Uh, Two years ago, the European Union issued a directive requiring all member states to adopt their own PNR systems by a deadline of May of 2018, so just just a couple months from now. Um, Other countries in the world have some more work to do. So the United States is committed to helping Again, countries that have the political will but may lack the resources, helping those countries meet their obligations. We've offered to make available our own system. It's known as the Automated Targeting System Global, or ATSG. We've offered to make that system available to countries that want it. Um, And we're not the only ones. The Netherlands, likewise, has their own PNR system. It's called TRIP. 
I forget what that one stands for. I don't speak Dutch, so it's perhaps understandable. Um, the the uh, Dutch system, um, they're willing to make that available through international institutions for countries that want it. So uh, use of information to spot terrorists trying to cross borders, that's one key tool that, uh, that I'm going to be prioritizing. Another is the use of designations. Um, we've really intensified the pace of, of designations over the past year. Um, at this point, a year ago, we'd only announced six designations. Um, in the past 12 months, we've announced several dozen. Um, now, excuse me for, for interrupting, but is that because there are more uh, that need to be designated or because in the past they, they, they were being ignored? There's probably a lot of factors that contribute to that spike, but one of the factors that contributes to it is this is a priority for this administration. Okay. Um, why does it matter? Well, the reason it matters that we're designating terrorist organizations is because this is a critical way of drying up the, the resources that are the lifeblood of terrorism. Um, we don't just want to stop the bomber. We also want to stop the money man who buys the bomb. And so when you designate a group, uh, you dry up those resources, you exclude it from the international financial system, and you make it much harder for these groups uh, to uh, develop the capabilities they need to, to commit attacks. Has the threshold changed for being designated? The legal standards uh, have been in place for a number of years and decades. There's a number of different tools. Some date back to the 1990s, um, the Foreign Terrorist Organization Statute, um, and then the other major instrument is Executive Order 13224, which dates back to 2001. Um, those instruments and the standards associated with them have been pretty much constant for the for the past number of years. What are your biggest challenges? I think one challenge is reminding the American people and the international community that the fight against ISIS isn't over. Um, the temptation is always to sort of dust off your hands and head home. Um, and that temptation is especially powerful uh, in the wake of the defeat ISIS coalition's successful efforts to liberate territory in Syria and Iraq. Um, but just because Raqqa has fallen, it doesn't mean that the fight is over. Um, ISIS hasn't surrendered. They don't think the fight is over. Um, they are adapting to their loss of territory. And what they're doing is fanning out across the globe, um, developing local franchises, um, inspiring individuals who've never traveled to the war zone, who've never signed a, an ISIS application to commit attacks of their own, on their own initiative. ISIS is adapting, we need to adapt too. Um, and that conference, uh, from, uh, that conference last week on, on law enforcement initiatives is a great example of how we are pivoting as well. We're bringing to bear all instruments of national power, prosecutions, designations, border security, uh, to address this next phase of the threat. Yeah. Very last thing, um, is there something that worries you more than anything else? And this is a, a new iteration of the old question, what keeps you up at night? My four-year-old. Uh, <laughs> there's, uh, it's, it's difficult to rank order and prioritize the, the various different threats we face. Um, number of different groups, number of different vulnerabilities they try to exploit. Um, one of the things I've found in this job is that 
the, the, the tools that we use most frequently, the ones we rely on most frequently, um, are sort of all-purpose countermeasures. Collecting information about people crossing your borders, well, that's a useful tool regardless of whether it's an Al-Qaeda operative or an ISIS operative. That's a useful tool regardless of whether somebody's coming uh, to commit a mass casualty attack uh, with a bomb outside a stadium or rent a truck and drive it into a crowd. Um, same thing with designations. If you dry up uh, the pools of resources available to Al-Qaeda, that stops them from buying bombs. It also stops them from buying bullets. So what we've tried to do uh, is develop counter-terrorist tools that are sort of interchangeable and that are effective guarding against a wide range of threats. Mm. Um, one other thing that occurred to me so forgive me for asking uh, next to the last question and then asking the last question that I'll ask, and that is, um, when does your day start and when does it end? Um, I'm usually in the office around 7.30, 7.45. Um, when does it end? Depends on the press of business. Sometimes around 7, sometimes later. Mm. Is there anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? You know, I've... I've been in this town long enough to know that when a reporter asks you to say something else, the answer is always no thank you. <laughs> so, uh, but we're different, though. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, let me think. You know, I would just reiterate what I said a moment ago. We can't afford to be complacent. Raqqa has fallen. Mosul has been liberated. ISIS is still there. And it's not just ISIS. It's al-Qaeda. It's Hezbollah. It's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Um, we need to remain vigilant against these threats. And that's what we're trying to do here at the CT Bureau. Mr. Sales, thank you. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, JJ. Thank you. Nathan Sales is the counterterrorism coordinator at the State Department. Coming up in our next episode, the poisoning of a former Russian double agent in the UK. It is now clear that Mr. Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent. British Prime Minister Theresa May in an historic moment. The government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. Russia was offered the opportunity to explain. They have treated the use of a military-grade nerve agent in Europe with sarcasm, contempt and defiance. And U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley says this is an urgent situation. If we don't take immediate concrete measures to address this now, Salisbury will not be the last place we see chemical weapons used. They could be used here in New York. Undisputed evidence that a new Cold War is underway. Coming up on our next Target USA. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. 
Hey, podcast listener, this is Rob Sisternino. I'm the Rob, and Rob has a podcast, and the new season of Survivor is just getting started, and we've got new episodes for you five days a week. Join us for interviews with your favorite past Survivor players in this season's losers right after they get their torch snuffed. Listen free to Rob Has a Podcast, exclusively available on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app. And if you like the show, why not share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.